regarding our study of information warfare and strategy writ large, and especially our study of information and great power competition, lesson two. There are three major themes that will show themselves throughout the course, really beginning this week. They'll show themselves, though, more and more as we go along. By early February, I think these three themes will become more and more clear. These three themes comprise the elevator pitch for the course. And it's through these three themes that we elected to focus on the topics provided in this course. With a discipline as wide and deep as information warfare strategy, our greatest challenge was what to leave out. Chopping down over 100 credit hours worth of material and case studies to what students have found most useful in their post-NDU careers. Of course, we're not crashing 100 credit hours into this course. On the contrary, we're selecting those topics that will most challenge our critical and creative thinking while offering ideas that may well be practical and actionable to the general national security uh, professional, warfighter, strategic planner topics and a course learning narrative that have most rewarded past graduates of NDU with a view to becoming trailblazers in what is essentially a new scholarly discipline of information warfare strategy in national security at the joint strategic and global level. Up to this point, the discipline has mostly been relegated to information operations, psychological operations, public affairs, public diplomacy. The three themes are as follows. One, foundational narratives. Two, finite versus beyond limits resources and means. Three, strategic flexibility. For foundational narratives, I want to throw back to SLFC through the neurobiology studies that we looked at. It's between 60 and 95% of our subconscious defines how we view and see the world. And Our subconscious is deeply impacted by those foundational narratives that I'll explain in a second. So we must recognize our deep-seated values that shape our reality. We often find that those that believe that they've been uh, somehow liberated from bias, that they see the world completely as it is, that those are usually the people or the peoples that are most easily influenced and manipulated. For my fall influence elective students, I'm going to speak to them for just a quick second. This was only this was, of course, one of the major themes, um, but we are now going to widen our aperture. Look to internal bias, look to strategy at large, and then persuasion and strategic communications campaigns. We are not just focusing on the far more limiting aspects of influence. So uh, worry not. So foundational narratives. As I said, this allows our cognitive and social constructs, as I said in SLFC, it allows national mythologies and matching communities. This is a throwback to beginning of the year, but something that was likely at least hinted at throughout the fall, and we're going to go further in this course. It provides a shared understanding of traditions and values and deep-seated biases. It determines or affects our most of our behavior and decisions, specifically, as I said, the subconscious. According to neurobiologist Miguel Nicholas, This is, and I'm talking about the subconscious that is affected by foundational narratives, the complexity allows, or this complexity allows the human brain to generate all the attributes that define the human condition, the entirety of a culture, history, history history-making, and civilization. 
it defines much of power and warfare. That is, you have certain governments or powers convincing people to follow them and not to follow others. It's one way to analyze great power competition, not the only, maybe not the best, but one way. Perhaps we can view Russia as wanting to perhaps dismantle or undermine democratic and constitutional republic values to shore up centralized power. Perhaps we can view or one can view Beijing as perhaps wishing to change or at least affect international, uh, international order from a rules-based and law-based system to a middle or central kingdom-based peace by means of the CCP. Perhaps Tehran wishes to export revolution. And I think most importantly, as I'll come back again and again, we have to understand our own deep biases. So now I'm going to read uh, or summarize some new literature and foundational narratives uh, that have that impact our biases, our worldviews, and how we make decisions and how we behave. This literature is new to us. The first is from journalist Cecil Adams. He says, The old notion was that the brain was essentially passive, reacting to external stimuli. Now that we realize external events don't change cerebral energy use that much, a different picture is emerging. Most of our mental activity is strictly internal. And I go on to quote Cecil Adams, neurobiologist, or sorry, neurologist Marcus Reichel calls the brain a Bayesian inference engine designed to generate predictions about the future. Another way of putting it is that the brain is the repository of the self, the construct of memories, conclusions, and desires that constitute our personalities. Now, looking at a book that came out at the end of 2021, the end of this past year, by Seth Anil. It's called Being You, A New Science of Subconscious. And he really delves, and I'm going to just summarize here uh, from a couple of his chapters between pages 80 and 88 of that book. He talks about how there's this old, outdated idea of how the brain works, and that is this outside-in view that we are reacting or good receptors or objective receptors of stimuli. And he says this is outdated. In fact, there is much far more evidence or overwhelming evidence at this point in scholarship that a better way to view the world is an inside-out view, that we generate our reality, mostly. And this is, not ba- this is based on, again, neurobiology studies, that have been conducted in the last 20 years and not based on the pretty good guesses from some behavioral economists from the 90s and some philosophers from the 19th century who were fairly close, um, but mostly by accident. Uh, Then a quote from a book by Harvard professor Daniel Everett called Dark Matter of the Mind, the Culturally Articulated Unconscious. And I quote, And he's uh, summarizing his findings of the book here. One, that the unconscious of all humans falls into two categories, the unspoken and the ineffable. Two, that all human unconscious is shaped by individual perceptions in conjunction with rank value, linguistic-based model of culture. And three, that the role of the unconscious in the shaping of cognition and our sense of self is not the result of instincts, or human nature, but is articulated by our learning as cultural beings. I refer to this more nuanced conceptualization of the unconscious as dark matter. 
He goes on to write, Dark matter of the mind is any knowledge how or knowledge that that is unspoken in normal circumstances, usually unarticulated even to ourselves. It may be, but not necessarily, ineffable. It emerges from acting, quote-unquote languaging, quote-unquote culturing, as we learn conventions and knowledge organizations and adopt value properties and orderings. It is shared and it is personal. It comes from memory and thereby produces our sense of self. So what does this mean for us? Again, the first step in understanding information, cognitive, narrative, influence warfare, and great power competition is that our competitors, our adversaries, and our allies view the world wildly different from each other. What is considered natural law, human law, human rights, inalienable rights are dramatically different. Your counterparts in Beijing and the Kremlin, for the most part, but certainly not all the time and not all of them, view history, time, the idea of self, the idea of community, the idea of nation, the value of human life, the law to protect the individual, and the value of stability over rights. These views are drastically different. But also, perhaps more importantly, as I said earlier, to acknowledge our own values and worldviews and deep-seated, important, sacred values. What others looking at us might call biases. Perhaps this is the first step to international politics, competition, and warfare. Theme number two, the finite versus beyond limits, resources, and means. What this is, is a marriage of the direct and the indirect, the bottom up and the top down, the orthodox and the unorthodox, and the indirect, the bottom up, and the unorthodox are very often connected with what we would call the informant excuse me, the information instrument of national power or information strategies generally. This idea of pushing our idea or pushing our minds beyond finite resources and means that Gaddis wrote about uh, that we read this past August is that we want to look for creative combinations of means, stepping outside of traditional dime education when possible and when appropriate. For example, how can we make building and strengthening trust as central to our missions? How can we all become educators of critical thinking to collapse some of the effects of disinformation and misinformation, which we'll discuss in Lesson 3? And this beyond-limits mindset does not necessarily imply subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage. Importantly for us, we're talking about truth, trust, and transparency, and a big tent mentality, reaching out to communities of interest that may not be taught necessarily in rote military training. That is, perhaps USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who have representatives all over the world, law enforcement, Department of Education grant programs, for example. And I think when we look to this idea of beyond limits versus finite resources and means, I think it helps to analyze a little bit the viewpoint from the CCP, one of the readings that we have, Unrestricted Warfare. And I'm going to provide an analysis by Ralph Sawyer from his book, The Tao of Deception. It's his analysis 
of unrestricted warfare. Certainly you don't have to agree with him. This is for debate. He says, and I quote, unrestricted warfare falls squarely into the Chinese tradition of total warfare. The battlefield no longer artificially confined. Conventional restraints should be ignored and every possible means systemically employed to wrest victory, with effectiveness being the only criteria for judging appropriateness. Bring about social panic, street riots, and a political crisis. Every means of corrupting and enervating society are to be deployed, ruthlessly causing disaffection and chaos in the manner of what we might term the ruthless practice of efficient warfare. And pushing on to Mark Gagliotti from 2019, and he's in this case talking about Russian active measures. And he talks about how the importance from the perspective, according to Mark, of the Kremlin is to exploit perceived Western weaknesses, from its divisions to its commitment to free speech and open politics. And now a quote from Bogdanov, to involve all public institutions, mass media, religious organizations, cultural organizations, NGOs, non-government organizations, public movements, grants, anything that will help to undermine a system of an adversary or competitor. The third theme is strategic flexibility. Strategic communications can be very important to ensure good operational art, and this is what I want to focus on for strategic flexibility. Now, we're going to do a deep dive of this in February, but we are going to start discussing it in Lesson 2. Again, a good part of strategic flexibility is having a powerful guiding vision that allows for campaign leaders and commanders, that allows your operational uh, executors of your strategies to conduct what is considered by some sound operational art. It allows them the flexibility to be able to operate on the ground given changing conditions. In particular, I want us to think when we think about guiding vision, the guiding vision that we want to provide subordinates, campaign commanders, the guiding vision of how we view great power competition. So this is our own, if you will, national security narrative. What do we want to achieve? Is warfare, as some scholars claim, the right way to think about great power competition? Is the word competition too limiting? Or is the word competition too vast? Should we see this as a contest at all? Should we react to competitors at all and play by their rules and let them prime the narrative and be reactive? Or should we focus a bit more on unique national interests and values? To this end, the idea of focusing perhaps on the self and providing a guiding vision as opposed to reacting, I want to bring back the quote from uh, Renatus. And this is something that was discussed in plenary in lesson one. It is a maxim never to do or to omit doing anything as a consequence of your enemy or competitor's actions, but to consult invariably your own interest only. And you depart from this interest whenever you imitate such measures as he pursues for his benefit. For the same reason, it would be wrong for him to follow such steps as you take for your advantage. And now a quote from Simon Sinek in his book, The Infinite Game. He suggests that traditional competition forces us to take on an attitude of winning 
A worthy rival inspires us to take on an attitude of improvement. The former focuses our attention on the outcome. The latter focuses our attention on process. That simple shift in perspective immediately changes how we see our own businesses. It is the focus on process and constant improvement that helps reveal new skills and boost resilience. An excessive focus on beating our competition not only gets exhausting over time, it can actually stifle innovation. Something to consider for strategic communications or offering a guiding vision in great power competition. Thank you.